You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll be looking together at chapter 9. This morning we're going to be reading together verses 1 through 9 in the book of Acts. And you'll find this in the Pew Bible on page 917. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I do think that it would be difficult to overestimate the significance of Paul's conversion. And I don't think it will be until Judgment Day that we'll fully understand its impact upon human history. He was educated at the feet of the most celebrated rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And with unmatched zeal, he devoted himself to the study and the duties of the Mosaic Law. He advanced in Judaism beyond his contemporaries, and he was what we would call a rising star. And during his rabbinical years, Saul declared himself an enemy of Jesus. With unparalleled fervor and ferocity, he persecuted the early church. Jesus had said, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. But then, amazingly, a great change took place in the heart and life of this Pharisee. By supernatural power, he was transformed from an enemy into a friend. Incredible. He went from persecuting to being persecuted, from the hunter to the prey. And in this remarkable way, by God's grace, he became perhaps the greatest witness the Christian church has ever seen. Luke begins the chapter by picking up on a theme that he had mentioned earlier, Stephen's courageous witness and martyrdom, which started a full-scale persecution. Those who stoned Stephen laid aside their robes at a young man named Saul. And the Bible says expressly that this man, Saul, approved of Stephen's execution. 
And the death of Stephen seemed to inflame his zeal and to launch him into unrestrained frenzy. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so the Jerusalem Christians fled for their lives and spread out across the known world. And Philip was one of them, you remember. And we've considered how the Spirit used him. He was at the center of a great revival among the people of Samaria. But then the Spirit removed him to a desert road to use him in the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch. And now the record returns to following the course of this young man from Tarsus. And it says Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So obviously there is no dampening of his extraordinary zeal. Saul was more determined than ever to stamp out Christianity. And so fixed was he that he was willing to hunt down anyone who professed Christ. And he wasn't content to just drive them out of Jerusalem, but he wanted to track them down and to root them out. He said later on to King Agrippa, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities like Damascus. So in one city after another, he showed up to oppose the way. And he had heard somehow that Damascus, the capital of Syria, had become a refuge for Christians. So naturally, he obtained authorization from the chief priest to seize them, bind them, and extradite them back. Back in Jerusalem, they would be tried, imprisoned, and perhaps even executed for their faith. And I think it shows to what lengths Paul, Saul was willing to go in his persecution of the church. Because listen to this, Damascus was about 150 miles north of Jerusalem, and much of it's desert. That means that it would have been about a six-day journey on foot. This man was determined. Practically nothing would stop him. And this was the man who in a few days would become a new convert. He was a proud, zealous Pharisee with hatred in his heart for Jesus. And if I had met him at that point, I would have said that he would never become a Christian. <laughs> How unlikely was Paul? He was far more unlikely in my estimation than even the Ethiopian eunuch. But as we said, the sovereign grace of God cannot be thwarted. Those whom the Father gave to Christ will be irresistibly drawn to Christ. That's what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And there Jesus points to this transaction that took place in eternity involving a certain group of people. They're given by the Father, they're received and kept by the Son, and yet they're not constrained by force. By His Spirit and His Word and His messengers, He sweetly draws them, guards them, and preserves them. 
That's an amazing thing. His grace is sovereign. So keep praying for your loved ones and trust him. Well, as Saul approached, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and it wasn't like a camera flash. It wasn't even like a bright flash of lightning. It was unlike anything you or I have ever seen. It wasn't a momentary flash at all. It was a sustained brilliance so intense that it rivaled the noonday sun. He says again to Agrippa, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And that was the glory of Christ. It was so bright that it outshone the sun. I don't know if you've ever looked at the sun. Not a good idea. Don't do it. But it's bright. Saul fell to the ground, acutely stunned, completely humbled, and totally blind. And it was a jolt to his mind and heart, and he had no categories whatsoever by which to define what had just happened to him. And it was no less overwhelming than the great theophanies of the Old Testament. You remember how when the Lord's glory appeared, Ezekiel fell on his face like a dead man. Or Joshua and Daniel, both of them fell prostrate when they saw the Lord's glory. In similar fashion, Saul fell to the ground when Christ's glory shone all around him. And he lay there prostrate, and a voice from heaven addressed him directly, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a very pointed and personal question with tremendous implications. And he's thinking to himself, who is this? How does he know me? Why is he saying that I'm persecuting him? And of course, Saul's already dazed by the glory. He's now stunned by the voice. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And I do think it's impossible for you and I to fully appreciate how those words affected Saul. Till now, he had been breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. And this settled, constant, relentless pursuit had been for God's glory, or so he thought. And suddenly he realizes that the exalted Christ is appearing to him and turning his world upside down. Saul had been on the wrong side. His whole life had been in error. He was not glorifying the name of God, but he was persecuting the people of God. And Jesus' words completely refuted everything for which he had worked. Everything. Can you imagine? Your life is wrong. And it must have hit him like a bolt of lightning, and it was shocking. All along, he had not been serving the Lord, but he had been striving against the Lord, and now Saul was a broken man. But as we'll see, by God's grace, he was not beyond repair. I think he was a little bit like Job, who himself had been completely humbled. Remember at the end of that incredible book, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye 
sees you? Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think in the same way Saul's ignorance had led him to persecute God's people, and it wasn't until Jesus confronted him that he realized his great mistake. In persecuting the church, he had been persecuting the Lord himself. And this dawned on him because of the way that Jesus identified his followers. He himself, Jesus, said to persecute them was to persecute him. We talked about this in Sunday school. It's a wonderful declaration. And few, if any, places in the Bible reveal the mystical union as clear as this. There is this intimate inseparable, mystical union and relationship between Christ and his church. So close is this relationship that if we're harmed, Jesus is harmed. He identifies with us, he is one with us, and it's a great mystery. Somehow, as we said, by the spirit and faith, we become one with the Lord. And I don't know about you, But I'm greatly encouraged by that. So intimate is the relationship that when you suffer, he suffers. He does know your pain. The same truth is highlighted in what was written in Matthew 25. The righteous will answer the king, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink, a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? Sick or in prison and visit you. When? And the king will answer them on that day. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. You know, it's been called the mystical union because it's between Christ and his people and there is no greater privilege or blessing. Vile, guilty, Unholy sinners united inseparably to a holy God. Paul says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We're joined to the Lord in union with Christ. We partake of the spirit by faith. The same Holy Spirit lives and moves in both the head and the body and we're one. And in principle, as Elder Van Drunen said this morning, we're seated with him in heaven. To illustrate, let me give you this example. I want you to consider a family that's moving from Hudson to Columbus. Um, The wife and children have moved to Columbus and the husband stays behind wrapping up all the loose ends and somebody in this neighborhood asks him, where do you live? I'm living in Columbus. But he's never been there. He has never set foot in that city. I'm living in Columbus. My name is on the title to the house. My family has moved in. That's where my heart is. And so it makes sense, we understand, for him to say, I'm living in Columbus. Similarly, Christ is in heaven. Our future is in heaven. Our hearts are in heaven. We're seated with him in the heavenly places.
Our union with Christ is one of the greatest gifts bestowed upon believers in Christ. The Catechism says it is the work of God's grace whereby we are spiritually and mystically yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as our head and husband. (laughs) You know, people tend to regard that which is unseen as somehow imaginary or unreal. But our union with Christ is far more real than any relationship you sustain on earth. It is far more durable since it's permanent and cannot be broken. And when you are once joined to Christ, you will always be joined to Christ. That's one of the reasons why the salvation of a believer is absolutely certain. You will perish as a believer only if Jesus himself perishes. And that'll never happen, ever. Nothing can separate you and I from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Saul discovered this in a very personal and soul-shattering manner. He now knew that in persecuting Christians, he persecuted the Lord. But the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, according to Isaiah. He is both able and willing to save the worst of sinners. He can reach as far and go as deep and hear as clearly as ever before. And our salvation is from God. And there is nothing that can frustrate him. Neither length of time nor strength of opposition nor weakness in the instruments. He can save the most wicked of sinners. Just look at Saul of Tarsus. He became one of the greatest monuments of grace that the world has ever seen. He says, I quote him, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And he meant it. That's not hyperbole. And so here he was, humbled, broken, blind, lying on the ground in shock. And the Lord Jesus says to him, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. And rather than spell everything out at once, the Lord makes him wait on the instructions. So for a few days, Saul is forced to meditate on this incredible experience. It's going to require time, as you can imagine, for him to assimilate. What just happened to me? And to think about the enormity of his sins. And the majesty of Christ. And the union that he has with believers. And that self-love and ambition that had driven him had to begin to be rooted out. And in its place, there had to be planted true humility and a sincere love for Jesus. And at just the right time, God would send Ananias as an instrument of restoration. Something real and objective had taken place to transform this man. The proud, ambitious Pharisee, now blind, broken, and helpless, and his companions who had heard the voice saw the light, fell to the ground in astonishment, and they could lend to its credibility. It happened. 
And I think what we ought to do, first of all, is to give thanks for the conversion of Saul into a disciple of Christ. Give thanks. He was one of the most vehement and formidable enemies of the church, but he was confronted by the reigning and risen Christ, and his mind, will, and affections were changed. And his conversion would shape the rest of his life and impact the rest of history. He must have had this incredible experience in his mind when he wrote these words. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This was a dramatic conversion. This was not an epileptic seizure, as some have theorized. This was not a mental breakthrough, as others have suggested. One of the church's greatest enemies was transformed by almighty power. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul had been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and as a chosen instrument, he was used by the Spirit to write much of the New Testament. So his salvation has impacted ours. And we should give thanks to God. At the same time, I don't want you or I to take Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road as some sort of model. It's not meant to be a pattern for all Christian conversions that follow. I hope you know that. Some think that for conversion to be genuine, you have to know the distinct beginning, just like Paul. In other words, you have to be able to fix the precise time and method of your conversion or you're not saved. There are people who believe that. But if that's true, then I would posit that the majority of professing Christians are ruled out. The Spirit's operation in converting sinners is so varied that it cannot be pigeonholed. Conversion sometimes is rapid and vehement. At other times, it's gradual, silent. One is converted by a sudden flash, another is converted over long periods of time through the use of the ordinary means of grace. And the only proof of conversion are the fruits by which it is followed. That's it. Jesus says, each tree is known by its own fruit. I don't care what you did 10 years ago at the Billy Graham concert or convention or whatever it's called. And I love Billy Graham. A lot of respect for the man. But what you did 10 years ago makes no difference. It's what you're doing now. The fruit. By this we know, says John, if we believe in Jesus, keep his commands and love the brethren. But then secondly, let's find in Saul's conversion solid evidence to prove the truth of Christianity. You and I know that Scripture is God's word because, in, in part, it's power to convert. Isn't that one of the things that shows us it's God's word? It searches the heart, it convicts the conscience, it converts the soul from sin. How else can a self-centered sinner practice self-denial and self-sacrifice? 
Even under the deepest distresses known to man, the word rejoices the heart. And as the Spirit of God bears witness by and with that word in our hearts, it converts the soul. The miracle of grace. And if we expand that to include the Christian faith, it proves that it's the only true faith. Paul's conversion is a powerful evidence that Christianity is true. How else do you explain the change in his heart and life? It was a complete about face. He was a man with a strong will and settled principles against the Christian faith. His position, his prestige, his influence were closely aligned with it. And the only way that this man would become a Christian was if he sacrificed it all. Everything. And as a consequence of his Damascus Road experience, that's what he did. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now for Paul to chuck it all, something real and extraordinary happened. He was blinded by the light, and three days later, he recovered his sight. And that's not normal, by the way. From sight to blindness, back to sight again. And then in a vision, he saw Ananias laying hands on him to receive sight. And in his own vision, Ananias was told to go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. And the two visions line up exactly. It had to have been the Lord. By themselves, those visions prove very little. You can chalk it up to imagination. But the exact correspondence between the two visions point to Christ. I don't think Ananias would ever have thought of visiting the man called Saul. He was a persecutor of the faith and likely to imprison him. So there's only one reasonable explanation for the conversion of Saul. His mind had been enlightened, his heart had been changed, he had embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, and Christianity is true. And by the way, your conversion proves the very same thing. Your testimony is powerful evidence of the truth of Christianity. It proves to you that the faith you profess and practice is the real McCoy. Why else would you do this? The psalmist says in Psalm 66, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. There's a testimony. It makes no difference how or when or where you came to Christ. Gradually or sudden, the fruit of your conversion is evidence of the truth of Christianity. But then there's a third lesson. I want us from this to learn that there is no sinner beyond the reach of God's sovereign grace. None of the early Christians, probably to a man and, or woman, expected Saul to become a follower of Christ. And after his Damascus Road experience, his conversion came to them as a surprise. He says, they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. 
This mighty change taken place in Saul filled them with joy and excited them to praise. And if Christ is so long-suffering with Saul, won't he be long-suffering with others? He did not condemn the man who thirsted for the blood of the saints. He saved him. So I don't want you ever to think that your case is hopeless. And I don't ever want you to think that you or somebody else is beyond the reach of Christ. If you struggle with assurance, and I know there are some of you who do, if you struggle with assurance, I want you to consider the Apostle Paul. No one hated Christ more. No one loved his people less than the Apostle Paul. And yet Christ saved him. Had nothing to do with Saul. Had everything to do with Christ. Paul hadn't done anything to gain this salvation. As a matter of fact, he did everything against it. Stephen Charnock is right. He says, God often makes the chiefest sinners the objects of his choicest mercy. Look at King Manasseh. Another prominent illustration. He was a horrible king. Perhaps the worst. A devil of a man. All sorts of abominations. He had been taught the true religion, but he turned against his own training. He introduced idolatry. He built altars in the temple. He sacrificed his own children. Manasseh. He resorted to sorcery, fortune-telling, mediums, necromancers. The innocent blood he shed filled Jerusalem from one end to another. And then the Assyrians captured him and exiled him in Babylon where he repented. It says he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, if that devil Manasseh can find forgiveness with God, anybody can. No one is beyond the reach of sovereign grace, not even Saul of Tarsus or King Manasseh, not even you. Don't ever think that your case is hopeless. God is rich in mercy. Perhaps you're anxious for a loved one who is rebellious, obstinate, unbelieving. And for years you've poured out your heart to God in prayer for him or for her. And he or her is as opposed to the gospel today as ever. And you see no possibility for the salvation of this loved one. His heart seems so hard. His mind is so dark. His affections are wedded to the world. But as Isaiah reminds us, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. So don't give up hope. Never cease praying because God's grace is sovereign. John Flavel says, What is their ignorance, obstinacy, and hardness of heart before that mighty power that subdues all things to itself? And as the church, you and I have the inestimable privilege of proclaiming the gospel, testifying that whosoever believes in him shall be saved and excluding none that will come unto him. Keep praying. Don't give up hope. God's sovereign grace is invincible. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible conversion of perhaps the church's greatest earthly enemy into one of the greatest monuments of grace. We pray that we might take encouragement from it and trust in your grace to save ourselves and others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.